Hello and welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast by Opus Partners. I'm your host, Stephen Knight. I'm Andrew Nichol. And today on the show, we're talking about what happens if my property coach gives me the wrong or bad advice. Now, this comes from a really great question at one of our recent webinars where somebody said, well, what if you go and buy a new build and the property that was recommended to you by the property investment company doesn't work out? Is there some sort of guarantee? And this is such a good question. We're not just going to talk about new builds in this episode. We'll also talk about what happens if you get a property coach and you're renovating it and you've paid them some money to tell you how to renovate. And to walk us through this, we have got Vanessa on our podcast from Opus Mortgages. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hi, team. Now, there are a couple of things you need to know about Vanessa. Before she joined our team at Opus Mortgages, she was our head of compliance at Opus Partners and is an absolute badass. We're going to get... <laughs> No, she is. No, I agree with that. (laughs) And you're probably thinking, oh my God, why are these guys getting their head of compliance on? This is going to be a really interesting episode. So don't skip forward or say this is going to be boring because it's not. One thing you need to know about Vanessa as well is we are going to come back next year with a new series of The Deal. What? Yes, I'm I'm announcing it for the first time here on this show. And I've been going on about this for years. Well, it's because we were at the Property Managers Conference in Wellington. Yes. And David Faulkner from Property Brokers got up and read our bios and said, but do you know what I really liked about them? The deal. That was a great show. So hang on, let me get this straight. I have suggested it for, say, a couple of years now. Many listeners of the podcast have suggested the same. But when David Faulkner gets up at the Property Management Conference, you thought your bio sounded so good that you're going to bring it back. No, it wasn't about that. You're putting words into my mouth. That's <laughs> because I'm used to cheating you out. But the cool thing is we're going to get Vanessa on the panel as part of the deal. And I haven't decided whether we're going to call you the Queen of Mean or the Compliance Queen yet, V. But we're going to be on there, which is going to be good. Now, Andrew, before we get into it, just recap for us the two types of property coaches and property investment companies. Okay, so property investment companies such as Opus. So we're one of them, but there's lots of them. Generally, they'll focus on new builds and they're going to get paid when you, the purchaser, buys a new build and they get a payment from the developer for selling that property or recommending that property. And again, we're an example of this type of company, but we're not the only ones. There are people like Propeller and Positive Real Estate. And I think I find property do that, but they also do existing properties as well. Now, then you can go to a property coaching company. Now, they generally focus on existing properties and you're going to pay them a fee to work with them. And normally it's between $10,000 upwards to, I think, to $35,000. And these are people like Asset Lab, Property Apprentice, Wolf Property. Now, Vanessa, what do we mean when we say what happens if you buy a property, like a new build property from a property investment company and it doesn't work out? Well, what I would say is that you don't buy a new build property from a property investment company, you buy it from a real estate agent from the beginning. (laughs) But what I would say is it depends on who is providing the advice. So if the property investment company is regulated under the Financial Markets Conduct Act, then they should be a registered financial advisor. If the property coach isn't, and maybe they are instead regulated under the real estate agent authority, then a different set of rules will apply to them as well. So determining who the regulating body is in that instance will be the key information you'd want. But what are the sorts of things that property investors are worried might go wrong? Yeah, so things like the property doesn't go up in value as fast as what they had originally been told by the advisor. The property doesn't rent out as much as what the advisor had said to them at the time. Things like they do renovations and it costs more than what they said it would. They do renovations and the value of the property doesn't go up as much as they said it would. I suppose it all comes down to, they told me the property would get X results and those results didn't come. 
without properly going into the explanation of things and the assumptions that had been built into what the future projections might look like. And Andrew, I know that you're working with somebody at the moment where this person, this investor, worked with a property investment company in this case. It was a new build and it actually didn't work out. Just give us some details around that. Yeah, so I remember I got contacted by Poppy last year and I'm still continuing dialogue with her to try and help her through the situation. But she was working with a property investment company, not us, and she bought an apartment in South Auckland and it has not been a good ride for her. Now, interest rates have gone up. The property values drop significantly, and she's had a really bad run with tenants. So, like she, the worst run. Yeah, ever. she emailed the other day with her latest update. The tenant turned into a meth head nightmare. She's behind in rent. She's refusing to pay until a court hearing, and the police have been called a few times, domestics, etc. And that there's been gangs that have been turning up with guns, and there was a stabbing, and the boyfriend who used to live there actually got injured. Oh my god. That is like the worst thing that could possibly happen to your property. That yep. is like terrible. I know the tenant now owes her $7,000. This is like the worst case scenario imaginable. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that this is a extreme situation. Like this is not usual for, for an apartment being rented out in Auckland, particularly a new build. Yeah, it is, is definitely not typical. But that leads to a really good question, Vanessa, which is, okay, she's used a property investment company. What are the guarantees? What can she do about it? Just be super clear. When it comes to investing, it doesn't matter whether it's managed funds, KiwiSaver or anything like that. There's no real guarantees of performance. So that's whether you're going to have a return or that the fact that it might not perform. So some of it's just a fact of life and property. But what is really important is that, that the client is made aware of the situation. So interest rates might go up, property prices might go down. There's no way that someone can guarantee the actual returns on these. So even if a property investment company puts together a cash flow forecast for you, they can't guarantee that it'll work out exactly the way that the forecast has been put together. And I think it's a little bit like accountants, right? So an accountant can put together a forecast for your business and say, cool, based on all of these assumptions, this is what I think your business is going to do next year. But they're not guaranteeing that it is definitely, absolutely going to happen exactly like it looks in the spreadsheet. And I think that's what you're getting at, right? Like there's a risk you take when you invest. There's a risk of owning a business. There's a risk of owning a house. But taking on that risk, you can get that high return. 100%. And it's all about being advised of those risks going into, into that arrangement. Okay. So what can Poppy actually do in that situation? Okay, so most property investment companies and some property coaching companies are registered financial advice providers. So what that means is they are going to be licensed under the Financial Markets Conduct Act and they're regulated by the Financial Markets Authority who are the regulated financial advisors, which means that there's a certain level of standards they meet through the Financial Advisors Code of Conduct. For example, that their recommendations are appropriate for the person that they're providing advice to. So I'll give you an example. You may have a property investor who comes to you and they are, let's go extreme, 85 years old, and they want to buy a property. They don't have any lending or anything like that. Now, the financial advisor needs to be able to provide appropriate advice based on the risk profile of that particular client. So I shouldn't, as a financial advisor, necessarily tell these people, buy a growth property and take a whole lot of debt out on this, given that this person probably has a low risk appetite at their age. Correct, yep. And so if we bring it back to Poppy's situation, like the property investment company can't guarantee that the property was going to go up in value, 
They can't guarantee that you're going to get a good tenant. But what we can do is go back and say, well, did the property investment company disclose that? Did they actually tell her about the risks? Or did they say things like, this is going to be a great property, it's going to be easy to find a tenant, which would be an example of them giving bad advice. Is and that right? A hundred percent. And I think there's two great words that you use there. Great, you have to be able to substantiate great as the financial advisor and easy. You have to be able to substantiate that as well. Because my interpretation of those words as a client may be completely different than your interpretation of those words as an advisor. And so making sure that if you say something like great, what does great actually mean? Can you substantiate it? And so the FMA put some guidance out around using those types of words so that there's more clarity, so there's better understanding. So let's say, Andrew, we went through and looked at all of the advice that Poppy got, and let's say there were a few things that weren't substantiated, you know, and that maybe some of that advice was lacking. What would you then do, Vanessa? Like, who do you complain to and try and rectify the situation? So there's a couple of avenues, depending on how the particular advisor is regulated. But if they are a financial advice provider, when they're providing advice to retail clients and consumers, then they need to be a member of the disputes resolution scheme. Now, you can find this by going on to the financial service provider register. Just type in FSPR into Google and then search the name of the advice provider. In there, you'll be able to then see who their disputes resolution scheme is. You can also see it in their disclosure statement, which should be on their website. And if you've received advice, then that should also be in the disclosure document that was provided to you. And so then do I go straight to the disputes resolution or do I talk to the actual company first? So the first point of call is to talk to the actual company first. So the key here is to advise the company that you do want to make a complaint detail the reasons surrounding your complaint, why you felt that the service that they provided didn't meet your expectations. And at that time, it'll go through their internal complaints resolution process. Most places will have a 10 working day turnaround time to come back to you with their resolution. If you as a consumer or client are not happy with the resolution that was proposed, you can go backwards and forwards with the company. Or after that time, you can then go to their dispute resolution scheme provider and go down that route. Now, really important that service is free. So as the person making the complaint, it doesn't actually cost you anything to make that. But you do need to go through the internal company disputes resolution process first. And one thing I should mention is obviously we're an example of a financial service provider. So by recording this podcast, putting it out there, there is a risk that maybe all of you guys decide to make complaints about us. But do you know what? I believe that it's really important that we put good information out there and you guys know what the different processes are if you do get bad advice. So I'm going to tell you about it anyway. So let's say Poppy goes to the company, says, hey, I'm not very happy with the advice that I got. Here are the reasons why. If they don't come to a resolution at that stage, that's when I go to the disputes resolution and they're independent and will guide both parties in making a resolution. That's correct. And I think the key there when you do go to the disputes resolution is just to be able to detail where your expectations weren't met, if there was a financial cost, how you substantiate that financial cost, and where you felt that the financial advisor wasn't adhering to the code of conduct. And Vanessa, what could somebody like Poppy, like her complaint may not be deemed like a legitimate complaint or, or it either would or it wouldn't. But let's say you go to the disputes resolution scheme and it turns out you've got a legitimate complaint. What can you hope to get out of it? Uh, so there will be a resolution that the scheme provider will come out with. It may be financial, depending on whether you suffered financial loss or not as the complainant. 
there will be an assessment made on what that actual loss was by the disputes resolution scheme. But then you need to be able to substantiate that. So then you need to be able to outline exactly what those costs were that were incurred by you. It may change the way that the financial advice provider provides services to future clients, which might not necessarily benefit you, but it will benefit other people in the future as well. And if you aren't able to come to a resolution or you feel like the resolution that the provider due didn't satisfy your needs, then there is an, another recourse that you can then go down the court's process as well. So you might get some money out of it. You might, you might or yep. you might not. Yep. So one of the other things that happens is you need to, as a financial advice provider, you keep a record of all the complaints that you have had made against you as well during the course of a year. And if, for example, the Financial Markets Authority come knocking on your door to do a monitoring review, then that will be included in part of their assessment. So there is a risk that the FMA might not be happy with the number of complaints they're receiving and they they may make an assessment accordingly. And it's important to note that it's really easy to start a complaints process. Yeah, so it's always on the disclosure document in stage one and it's always in the website disclosure as well. Yeah, so if you jump on somebody's website, like if you jumped onto ours, found the disclosure, which is usually under something called like important information or legal information or disclosure, it's it's got to be on a prominent place of everybody's website. That's a condition of being a financial advice provider. You'll be able to find that and usually it'll be something like complaints at opuspartners.co.nz or they'll have somebody that you can contact and start that formal process. I love that you know the, where to find it on the website. That's well done. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's because my team have to actually implement that. What's your read on Poppy's situation? From what you can see, and I know you, you're the compliance queen, so you'll say, well, I haven't seen all of the details, but just based on what you've read so far and we've talked about, do you think she's got a legitimate complaint? So I think the, the key part here is, was there a risk assessment done on that particular client's profile? So what was their appetite for towards risk? And was the property that was recommended to her suitable? The assumptions that were made around the returns, can they be substantiated? What was the data that was sitting in behind it to come to the conclusion that that was likely a return? And then what I would say about that, knowing a little bit about Poppy's situation, is that you have to be able to compare like for like. So it would be like saying the return on all managed funds is 10% versus the return on a growth managed fund is 10% compared to a conservative managed fund, which might be 2.3%. So you have to be able to compare like for like. So if you, she's getting recommended an apartment, then it should be returns on an apartment in that area versus a standalone three-bedroom house in Rolleston, for example. And actually, that's an interesting one because... I remember I've looked at the numbers for Poppy and, and, you know, again, some of this stuff is just life. You know, prices do go down sometimes, interest rates do go up sometimes, but there were some assumptions there that I personally wouldn't have been comfortable with. So again, it probably needs someone independent to say whether or not that seems fair and reasonable. One that Ed and I discussed was the capital growth rate. Yeah, so the, on the financial advice, it said, I think you told me, Andrew, they assumed that the apartment would go up in value by 6.5% per year. And Andrew said, well, what do you think about that? And I say, well, I believe it's too high for an apartment. He said, just go get the data. So this property is in Papakura. Now, if you go and try and get Ryan's data for apartments in Papakura, you get no data pretty much because there are so few apartments that have sold in Papakura over the last 30 years. They can't compile an index. There's no good data about it. But what I do know is that Auckland properties since you know 1992 as a whole have gone up by about 7% a year. You might say, well, that all sounds reasonable. Maybe 6.5% is the right growth rate to use. But then we come to Vanessa's point, which is, okay, well, let's drill in on apartments. 
And we know for apartments in Auckland City, according to the Ryan's House Price Index, they've only gone up by an average of about 5.2% a year. And the values go up and down a lot more quickly. So apartment prices are a lot more volatile, which means they have more risk. And so that's one thing that there could be a legitimate complaint around. So Vanessa, would you expect to see a capital growth forecast more in line with maybe a historic rate and then maybe a discount for you know the fact that, that future performance isn't guaranteed from past performance? A hundred percent. And what I would also say is you'd also expect some commentary around the fact that there was very limited data to be able to come to that, that growth rate, that capital return, just to be able to provide some context around where that number actually was derived from. Okay, so next step for Poppy or anybody in that situation would be to find out what the complaints process is, just go find it on the website, and then go through that process. But what about a company like a property coaching company that isn't a financial advice provider but is helping somebody you know, renovate? For example, I don't think a good friend of the show, Steve Goody, he's a property coach out of Wellington, excellent property coach uh, to the best of our knowledge, but... We don't believe he's a financial advisor, which is which is fine. It's just a different set of services. But that means that perhaps he wouldn't be caught under the regulations around financial advisors. So if somebody did have a complaint or something went wrong in that situation, what's the guarantees? What can you do? So there's a couple of things there around whether or not the Consumer Guarantees Act might apply for that in that particular instance. And because there was a service provider, there was a fee paid, then they might be captured under that, depending on what the particular issue is there. Also, the Fair Trading Act, where the coach made a statement that that could be misleading or deceptive, and it's in trade, which is where you receive the feedback for it. So there may also be some avenues there. If you do want to go down that path, then the person that you would reach out to would be the Commerce Commission. So again, because it's going through the Commerce Commission, they would then do an investigation. There would be no cost to you as the complainant via the Commerce Commission. And actually, one thing to point out is that while there might not be the same guarantees if you use a property investment company, that's the same as if you buy on your own. So with a financial advisor, you don't get any guarantee about how the investment's going to perform, but you do get protections around the real estate agent side of things. So if you're buying with a real estate agent, then they need to disclose everything about that property. And there are protections around the advice that you get from the financial advisor as to whether or not something's fit for purpose and whether or not the numbers are reasonable. Now, if you go out on your own or you just buy through a real estate agent or a developer directly, maybe you don't have those same protections because it's just you. It's just you approaching someone and buying a property. Right, let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. really does help us get the message out to more people. listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Steve McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. We're going to be back here tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics, and insights to help you get the most out of the property market. Until next time, 